The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Right now, uh, I'd like to welcome to studio uh, Joe O'Brien. Joe O'Brien is a Green Party TD and he is Minister for Integration. Uh, Minister, lots of people, uh, I know, they look at, and I want to talk to you in a moment about pathways to citizenship and, and other stuff uh, uh, that, that you're you're passionate about and, and is within your bailiwick. But lots of people listening to this, that they, they hear the figures, they see the figures for refugees and asylum seekers for last year. 70,000 from Ukraine, 13 odd thousand from other countries seeking refuge in this country. And I wonder what your response is to the people who hear that and their response is not that it is something that we should be proud of, but rather they say Ireland is full. Gosh, well, where, where to start? I mean, I suppose a lot of the people who were presenting outside of buildings where people are living and protesting the fact that they're living there presented for a whole variety of reasons. So it's tricky to give them all one message, only to say that uh, what you did won't work, what you're calling for won't happen. Uh, but you also, probably some of you, will have legitimate uh, gripes you may be legitimately angry about other things that have nothing to do with the people that are living in the buildings that you are protesting outside. And there are better or more productive ways uh, to uh, to bring your dis- dissatisfaction through the political system as well. Um, it can be frustrating. A lot of the issues that people face have been uh, ingrained for a long period of time. Uh, but it, it does work. Uh, the system does work in that regard. So don't point it at people who aren't to blame for the issues that you're facing. How precariously balanced is the system at the moment? Well, I guess, again, it depends what you're talking about in the system, but I'm assuming you're talking about the accommodation situation yes. for both Ukrainians and international protection applicants. We're under a lot of pressure. Um, I had a series of briefings last week with officials uh, in the Department of Children Integration and, I mean, many people will have read about the briefing material uh, that I received as well prior to Christmas uh, when I got confirmed in the role. Uh, and, like, I had been in touch with it quite closely before then as well. Obviously, Minister Gorman is my party colleague. It's an issue I'm very interested in. Uh, so I've been aware that it was challenging. Certainly when you see the detail of it, certainly when you see all the efforts that the staff in the department are going to on a daily basis to try to procure more accommodation, uh, you can't but not be worried um, because people are coming in, people are fleeing war. Uh, there's been, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here now, I think there's been around 7,000 civilians killed in the Ukraine uh, in the last 10 months. It's still threatening. People are still afraid to be there. People are still fleeing uh, bombings. And I suppose our response to that needs to be and needs to continue to be to offer people safety uh, and shelter. Um but as you said, the system is under pressure. We are constantly looking for new channels, um, but we need to we need to continue to do that. But we also need to con- con- start doing different things as well. And we need to, I think, we need to procure more accommodation. The state needs to uh, own accommodation itself mm. as well, uh, and that's in the context, in particular, I think, of the tourist season coming up, where we're currently we're dependent on quite a lot of private providers. Many of them may pivot away from what they're doing for us and uh, for the state uh, when the time comes. And we need to be as best prepared for that as we can. Is it realistic to think that we would be able to provide enough accommodation publicly by the end of March, beginning of April, when we understand a lot of these contracts with hotels and guest houses will expire and those hotels and guest houses are going to pivot back to their traditional clientele? 
Uh, we have to, and we have to we have to do everything we can to do that. There are a number of channels ongoing uh, in terms of um, beefing up our accommodation offer and, and the options that we have. Uh, we have 6,000 people in pledged accommodation, and I want to thank all the, the people who have opened their homes, the Ukrainians in that regard. Uh, we've got modular in the pipeline as well. We need to scale up modular. Um, Department of Housing with the Office of Public Works is working on a refurbishing refurbishment strand as well. So there's a number of strands ongoing mm. and we need to try to retain as much as we can with some of them and build and start and grow yeah. others as but well. The, but those briefing documents you mentioned, I mean, they talked about a 14,000 bed shortfall possibly by the end of March. Yeah, it was, and It's easy to kind of say here in studio, oh, well, look, we just have to do it. But yeah. it's another thing doing it. Where's that going to come from? Where are 14,000 beds going to come from? Well, we need to do things differently. And I suppose that's where I'm talking about. We need to acquire property as well. Uh, we can't just be reliant on the fact that hotel providers will stay with us because we don't think they will in, in, in the numbers that we have at the moment as well. So we, we there are channels started and I, I've got briefed on some of them. Are you disappointed uh, by that, that more of the hotels are not sticking with it? Look, they make commercial decisions. Yeah, uh, I but are you disappointed that. with some of those commercial decisions? Uh, no, I, I mean, uh, no, because I mean, a lot, a lot of the the reason behind the white paper, by the way, to end direct provision, was the recognition that we can't depend on private providers. The state needs to have control of mm. the accommodation uh, that it will offer to people who are looking for protection. The inevitable numbers that will come every year. Obviously, more came last year than we had expected. Um, but no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, private I, providers. I, I interrupted you. You were making the point about alternative accommodation, sourced and secured by the state. What what types of things are we talking about? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think the principle that we have in the white paper is a good one to stick on. So, in that, we're proposing to acquire our and our build reception centres. Um, for international protection applicants but I think that general principle can be used across the board as well in terms of the people that are coming here as well so look uh, I'm not going to get into specifics but everything and anything that's possible to acquire Mm. uh, we need to look at and need to consider Limo Dwyer uh, who's now I think officially advising the Red Cross uh, and uh, and formerly an executive role there was on this show last week and he talked about um, the state needing to look at things like uh, vacant commercial property, you know, warehousing in and around uh, industrial estates uh, up and down the country, overshop units, you name it, you know, even empty office space. He talked about the, 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 the amount of vacant commercial property that's out there and the amount of accommodation that could provide. And he felt there wasn't enough being done on that front. Certainly, we need to look at every option, every building, everything that's potentially viable, I would say we're actually doing quite a lot of what you've outlined there as well in terms of uh, em- empty commercial units. Uh, we are using empty commercial units and trying to repurpose them. Uh, that's happening in, in, in quite a number of lo- locations and I expect that's one of the areas that we'll have to do more on as well. Uh, so tell me more then about this path to citizenship that mm-hmm. people might have seen you talking about in the newspapers this morning. Okay, well, I mean, I guess I've worked in the area of immigration for 20 plus years, Mm. really, and engaged a lot with the immigration system, helped a lot of people negotiate the immigration system over time, very familiar with the Irish immigration system and how it's improved and developed over time as well. Also very familiar with how uh, other countries do it very well uh, in terms of integration. And the countries that do it well are the countries that offer people a quick clear route to citizenship to become a full citizen of that country. Um, 
we have such like where just go, by, well, by Canada is often touted as one of the best but but we've come a long way here ourselves as well uh, in that there are increasingly clear paths to citizenship in Ireland as well and generally anybody living here with a particular type of residency for five years can do so and we see many thousands of mm. people every year becoming Irish citizens and I, I feel given the context of the war that we're in the fact that there is little end in sight the fact that the uh, European Union has agreed to extend the Temporary Protection Directive into March next year. You're looking at people being here for at least two years. We see a lot of young families here with young children who are going to school, many who will start primary school, many who will make their first best friends in primary school, and they will begin to see Ireland as home. Uh, So to me, it makes sense uh, that they will be given in time, I'm not saying we set it up and do it now. Yeah. But certainly something that we should be looking at next year, that they would be given a clear option uh, to stay here in the long term uh, and to become citizens in the long term. And it's very rare in my experience of the system here that you would have a category of migrant that would have very strong rights for a period of years but wouldn't be given that option. Yeah. So it wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be reinventing the wheel here. Obviously, this is a new category of status uh, but I think we just need to be proactive in planning. And it's it's just a recognition of the length of time this is going on. Is, is it because people will remember the narrative in March last year when we opened up our doors and when a lot of people opened up their homes. It was like this is a temporary thing. None of these people fleeing Ukraine want to be fleeing Ukraine, and they're going to want to go home as soon as they can. But well, it's just an acceptance that for some that won't be in the foreseeable, and by the time they can go home, we should recognise some of them won't want to. Yeah, I, I, I think even even if tomorrow, magically, something happened and the war finished and everything was safe, you would still have a number of issues in terms of um, people's towns and homes being destroyed, there actually being no place for them to go home, and the fact that many people, even in the 10, 12 months that have passed, have actually set down roots as well and see a good future for themselves mm. here too. Uh, so there's that, but there's the fact that I, 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 I think it's not going to finish tomorrow uh, and we, we should plan for it not, not finishing anytime soon, unfortunately, I think. It's just wise to plan that way, I think. And given that reality and the reality that that uh, imposes on, on the system, the precariously balanced system as we described it earlier, can we take it as read that we're going to see more of these protests that we've seen around the country. Is, is that is that going to be a fact of the political landscape in Ireland, do you think? No, I, I wouldn't necess- necessarily say it's a given. Um, I don't think they were particularly successful last week. But I would also say that it's part of my job uh, to bump up the community engagement side of things as well. Uh, in the department that I've served for two and a half years, Department of Rural and Community Development, I would have spent a lot of time uh, out on the ground, working with community groups, figuring out how to better support community groups. So there's quite a strong and far-reaching community organisation infrastructure across the country as well. And there are strong community leaders in every little locality around the country. And I suppose I'm in a good position to start listening, talking to them, opening a dialogue with them uh, to see how we can do this better uh, and to make sure that the people who are coming new to a locality or who have been there for a year, maybe more, are as linked in as possible uh, to that locality as well. I mean, I'll give you a good example, actually, that might surprise some people. I I visited some of the residents in Ballymun last week who were staying in the two different locations Mm. that where the protests were. And what really struck me was, particularly the people, there was some people who had been there for nine months or more, 
they were really embedded in the community in Ballymun and they knew that what was happening outside their door was not representative of the place that they were living. To me, I actually went there to try and give some reassurance to them, but I got some back because I really felt they were part of the community in Ballymun, particularly those people who've been there for some time. There was uh, some pe- some kids were going to local school, some people were involved in a local soccer team, uh, and the school was reaching out to them as well. And a lot of what happened in reaction to the protests actually bulked up and strengthened that yeah. set of relationships that were already there. And actually the people who came in newly as well in the last few weeks, links and connections had already been made. Some of the men that I met, they had mobile phones of, of people in the community yeah. and they were getting offers of support. So that it's not as dramatic, it's not as newsworthy, but all that's there, all them relationships are there and I want to help yeah. increase them and build them and make them stronger. And it, it, but at the same time, it does seem like, that, and Drew Harris talked about this as well, last week, it does seem like elements of, of the right or the far right are just simply racists in Ireland, if we'll describe them that way, because that's what they are. I mean, if they walk and talk like a racist, let's call them a racist, that they've just coalesced around this issue and and they feel that they are meeting with some level of success in terms of of uh, awareness and recognition of what they're doing. <clears throat> I'm not so sure. I mean, there there is a Garda issue there and the Garda are, are very aware and they're monitoring people who are trying to mobilise and spread hate and, and, spread, and spread racism as well. Um, they're not going to change policy. They're not going to move people out of communities because people are embedded in communities and uh, our, our policy is strong in this regard, you know. So, I, I mean, will people come to other places and hold up banners? There's a good possibility. Will they change the way how we do things? I don't think so. Some of them are racist, aren't they? Would you agree? Yes, no doubt. You only need to see what they say. Yeah, well, listen, before you go, Minister, a little bit earlier on the show, we were talking about one of your ministerial colleagues, uh, Pascal Donoghue, former Minister for Finance, now Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. Do you think he still has questions to answer about his campaign finances from 2016? I don't think so. I mean, I listened to you gave quite a lengthy and detailed statement uh, this morning uh, that I've listened to. Uh, he has made himself available. Uh, he, himself, he, he'll make himself available again uh, to SIPO once they have concluded their investigation. Uh, but SIPO are, in, are, investi- are investigating this matter now. Uh, and I think we should let that uh, investigation run its course. Uh, Minister for Integration and Green Party TD for Dublin Fingal, Joe O'Brien, Minister. Thanks many for joining us. Thank you, Kieran. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.